Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, an exhibit now at the Greeley History Museum features the work of a prominent Nebraska photographer in the early 20th century. The story behind John Johnson and his photography really tells us a lot about who we are and who we have been. We'll hear that story and explore Johnson's impact on our world beyond photography. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Later in the show, we'll hear about encampments being assembled to provide temporary shelter for people experiencing homelessness. It's a partial solution that's being tried in a handful of communities here in the Mountain West. But first, as we celebrate the accomplishments and contributions of African Americans during Black History Month, we're going to explore the impact of a talented and prolific photographer whose work has left us with powerful images of what life was like for African Americans living in the Great Plains in the early part of the 20th century. We begin in the 1960s when a teenager in Lincoln, Nebraska named Doug Keister acquired a heavy box from a friend. The box was filled with hundreds of glass plate negatives, a photography technology that was in use in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He kept those negatives over the decades. In 1999, he saw a newspaper article from his hometown paper about historians uncovering glass negatives from the 1910s and 20s that feature portraits of the city's African-American population. The negatives found by the city's historian and the hundreds Keister acquired in the 60s featured the work of John Johnson, a black photographer from Lincoln who documented life for African-American communities in the Great Plains in striking, contrast-rich portraits. Large-scale prints of Johnson's photography made from Keister's collection can now be found in museums across the country, from the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. to the Greeley History Museum, where an exhibit featuring some of Johnson's work is on display through May 28th. To further explore the life, work, and legacy of John Johnson, we're joined by Dr. Aaron Bryant, a curator of photography and visual culture at the Smithsonian's Museum of African American History and Culture and a fellow with the John W. Klug Center Library of Congress. Aaron, thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for inviting me to uh, uh, be a part of this uh, conversation. I can't wait to learn a bit more about his work. John Johnson was born in 1879 in Lincoln, Nebraska, and he became a prolific Black photographer from 1910 to the mid-1920s. Can you give us a bit of the history of Johnson's earlier life and what led him to become a photographer? Uh, well, you know, I think it's really interesting that um, he was the son of enslaved people. His father was a Civil War veteran, and his mother, of course, had uh, uh, liberated herself from enslavement. And uh, and he graduated from Lincoln High School in 1899 and then attended the University of Nebraska for uh, several semesters. He didn't receive a degree from there. Um, however, um, he went on to take several jobs, uh, including being a uh, janitor uh, for the Lincoln Post Office. 
uh, I think by 1918, that's when he married uh, his wife, Odessa, and uh, they had no children. Um, but uh, he adopted the community, the African-American community in Lincoln, and, um, and became an, a really important uh, part of helping to document and record their lives. I mentioned glass plate negatives, which were a key development in photography at the time. In my mind, I'm picturing some pretty intricate early cameras. I'm wondering what access was like to this equipment for Johnson. Well, you know, that's um, hard to say, but because um, early on in the history of photography, uh, photography could be quite an expensive um, vocation um, and really intensive, labor intensive. But by the time we get around to glass uh, plate negatives, um, things have become easier. You know, we were at the turn of the century um, and the beginning of the 20th century, um, actually. Uh, things have become a, a bit easier in terms of processing. However, uh, with glass plates, they were still, you know, these cameras were still pretty huge. So not unlike, they were nothing like the cell phones we have in our pockets today. Um, but, you know, the, pro the process of uh, developing prints had um, come a long way um, over the course of 50 or 60 years uh, since the beginning of the history of photography by the time that Johnson um, was doing his work. Uh, we also had a number of other um, Black photographers, well-known uh, photographers, who were uh, showing up around this time as well, including um, someone as uh, well-known as James Van Dusey, who actually makes his mark by the 1920s. How would people have seen Johnson's work at the time? knowing that it's not as simple as just pulling out your cell phone and showing someone pictures of your dog or your children. Um, how, how would people have seen his photographs? Well, the same way you would see many photographs, really, um, and these types of photographs, especially with glass plates, they were really keepsakes. Uh, they were about documenting a time in people's lives. And so you would see them in, in uh people's homes, they would uh, decorate their bedrooms, their parlors and living rooms. And, and I would say, especially at this time when there's a new Negro movement that's happening in, in uh, Nebraska, uh, folks were really interested in how they could document their lives um, and their, their, their claims on the American dream really. Um, because the Black community in Lincoln, Nebraska, was really attempting to achieve the American dream of having land, having a home, and raising a family. And so they wanted to document that. And so a lot of the photographs you see in John Johnson's collections uh, really does record um, those memories in people's lives. You know, many of the photographs were taken outside of homes, uh, taking, and they were taken in front yards, uh, they were photographs of families and family gatherings. And uh, so, you know, it really was a time when people wanted to record and document their achievements as they got closer and closer to the American dream. Again, keeping in mind that um, Johnson, like many of his contemporaries and the folks that he was capturing on camera, were the sons and daughters of ex-slaves. I'd like to read a quote about the importance of Johnson's work from Michelle Gates Moresi, a curator at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. 
quote, they speak to a time and a place where African Americans were treated as second-class citizens but lived their lives with dignity. You can read about it and hear people talk about it, but to actually see the images is something entirely different. How was Johnson's portrayal of Lincoln, Nebraska's black community received at the time? Uh, well, you know, Lincoln had, was going through, as well as in other parts of the country, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska was really going through a renaissance in many different ways. You know, we're talking about a generation that's post-slavery. We're, we're really coming out of Reconstruction. It's at the end of World War One, And so there is a backlash against this idea of African-Americans um, wanting to achieve not just equality, but citizenship and the American dream. And so you have some people who may not react um, as kindly to the idea of African-Americans owning homes uh, and owning property and uh, wearing suits. Um, you know, again, thinking about what was happening and um, in America after World War One, you know, it could be quite precarious for African-Americans to wear uniforms, uh, let alone to walk around as if he or she were bankers and um, had wealth and were ach achieving that model of uh, the American dream. So Lincoln, Nebraska, you know, at this time, there were a number of um, policies that were being put in place to sort of um, uh, in many ways to keep African-Americans from um, achieving the dream and um, certain levels of equality. Uh, but at the same time, for African-Americans, it was really important uh, because Johnson was, was really a part of this movement in which African-Americans would control the narratives of their own lives. Uh, so these photographs were not just inspirational to many, they were aspirational as well. And, um, and so I think there were some who saw it as important and most certainly today as a historian, uh, we really appreciate how important his work was because it shows us the image of African-Americans as they wanted to be represented, documented and uh, uh, remembered uh, throughout history, as opposed to some of the negative images that might have uh, pro proliferated popular culture at the time. How might Johnson's uh, portrayal and documentation, how might that have compared to the Black representation people would have otherwise seen in the media at that time? Well, uh, again, when you think about what was happening politically and socially uh, in this country, uh, African-Americans coming out of slavery and going through Reconstruction, you know, we have the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments that give African-Americans full rights as citizens and uh, including the right to vote and equal protection under the law. And so for many people, um, you know, they weren't really excited about that, right? So in addition to some of the violent backlash, uh, that African-Americans had to deal with. Uh, there was also the, the backlash that was ha happening in popular culture as well. Uh, if you think during the mid 19th century with uh, the rise in minstrelsy, for example. So at the time that Johnson was taking his photos, uh, minstrelsy, which had become a popular form of uh, in American culture, uh, by the time Johnson was taking his photos, um, it might have been 60, 70 years later. And so you had African-Americans who were really um, 
responding to, in many ways, the negative images of African-Americans that had taken on political currency, uh, as well as popular um, currency within popular culture. And so in order to get full equality, African-Americans sort of had to wrestle their image, their own image and representation. And then also thinking about how it could be 20, 30 uh, years after Frederick Douglass, who's, who was really prolific and, and, and prophetic, actually, and how he talked about the African-American image and the sociopolitical and cultural power it had um, and, and helping African-Americans to move towards greater equality. Um, also, Du Bois, and, you know, in 1900, for example, with his Paris Exposition, where he did one of the earliest um, exhibits of African-American photography um, during the uh, Paris World Fair. Um, you know, they all really understood the power that the image had uh, in, in redirecting and controlling the narrative of how African-Americans would be represented throughout history, uh, as well as during their present time. That's the first part of our conversation with Aaron Bryant about photographer John Johnson. Bryant is a curator of photography and visual culture at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Johnson's work is on display in an exhibit at the Greeley History Museum, which opened today and runs through May 28th. We'll be back in just a moment with more on Johnson's photography and how it shapes the way we think today. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. John Johnson was a prolific African-American photographer in the early 20th century in and around his hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska. Primarily between 1910 and about 1925, Johnson documented Black families and communities around the Great Plains. A number of his photographs are currently on display in an exhibit that just opened at the Greeley History Museum. For insight into Johnson's life and his impact today, we're speaking with Aaron Bryant, Curator of Photography and Visual Culture at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Is there a photo of Johnson's that really stands out to you? Uh, there's one of um, Manitoba James and his children, Mirtha, Edna, and Moraney. Um, uh, I think that's how you pronounce the name. I love that photo. What stands out to you about that one? Well, it's a photograph of a of a young man on his porch, um, sitting in a chair, and he's surrounded by three children. He's wearing a suit and a hat, and his children are all wearing, they're all uh, little girls. They're all wearing these pretty dresses. And the connection they have, the pride that he has in his children, the pride that he has in his home, apparently. Um, you can just sense that he felt like he was getting closer and closer to his idea and the American ideals of Americanism. And I, I really love the sense of a family and achievement and pride um, that's really all over his face that I think is enduring. Um, it lasts past the turn of the century. It's the same kind of pride you would see um, of a father uh, with his three kids in front of their homes today. So I think it really transcends race, geography, time, 
Um, it's just a very human kind of photo. It, it shows the best of our humanity and the, and the best of Americanism, I think. We briefly told the story of how some of his work came to light via this box from a garage sale. Did uncovering a trove of material like this at once shape the way we view Johnson's work or maybe his legacy as a whole? I'm kind of wondering how notable Johnson's work would have been prior to a big collection like this entering the picture. Um, I would say that it's really important. It's hard to say. Um, quite honestly, you know, if we had not discovered Johnson, I think his impact is really important because it does provide evidence of this new Negro movement happening in different parts of the country. Often when we think of the new Negro movement and uh, we think of the Harlem Renaissance as well, but we think mostly about the East Coast. We don't talk about um, these movements of African-Americans sort of claiming their own agency or subjectivity, taking control of their lives and uh, working towards the American dream in other parts of the country, including, you know, a place like Lincoln, Nebraska. And so I think the discovery of um, these images really does help us to position um, the importance of other parts of the country in this larger narrative of American progress and African-American progress. In many ways, it helps to open up new opportunities for future scholars to, to look at what African-Americans were doing in other parts of the country, uh, particularly those parts of the country that were really important to American history and African-American history, but often not thought about or talked about. And I think um, Johnson really helped to put African-American history and the Midwest and Western parts of this country on, on a larger intellectual map. And I would say with our museum, um, we've helped to promote the idea that history happens all over the country. Not just on the coasts. Exactly. Well, I'd like to wrap up by asking about his legacy, you know, a century later, how do you think Johnson influenced the way we think today, even beyond photography? Well, I think it really opens up these other narratives. Um, again, when you think about not just history, but popular culture, if you look at a lot of our uh, television shows and, and movies, um, everything does seem to happen on the coast. But between the two coasts, there were still people living and they had everyday lives and those everyday lives impacted history in a major way. And um, I think it's a pleasant surprise um, to find that we can talk about Black people outside of the context of just the South, for example, during this time, or in places like New York um, or Chicago, that we can begin to look at what Black communities were doing in large and small cities all over the country. Maybe it should be um, understood that there's the sense of community and commitment that the community had to one another was really important. And I would think, um, I would really encourage people to look at these unexpected histories and these very unexpected places, uh, because I think the story behind John Johnson and his photography really tells us a lot about who we are and who we have been um, as a nation. 
um, I think it says something really important about American exceptionalism. Dr. Aaron Bryant is a curator of photography and visual culture at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture and a fellow with the John W. Klug Center Library of Congress. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I, I really appreciate it and uh, enjoyed the conversation. I think it's an important topic, so thank you for covering Johnson's work. If you'd like to see some of Johnson's photographs for yourself, his work is on display in the Black and White in Black and White exhibit at the Greeley History Museum until May 28th. And you can see the photo of Manitoba James and his family that Dr. Bryant was talking about right now at our website, KUNC.org. Homelessness is a growing problem in many cities across the Mountain West. Yesterday, we heard about a difference in attitudes and approaches toward supporting people who have lost homes due to natural disasters like wildfires versus support for people experiencing chronic homelessness. Today, we're going to look at one potential solution, albeit only a partial one. Some communities, including Denver, are setting up their own encampments to provide temporary shelter as well as restrooms and laundry facilities. For KUNC, Lucia Starbuck has more. Walls, floors, doors, and other parts are being assembled east of downtown Reno. This is the site where Washoe County set up its campsite. Steven Sanchez has stayed in a county-provided tent for about two months. Before that, he was sleeping in a tent along railroad tracks. When you're outside, you're exposed to everything. Everything can get you. Anybody or the weather or whatever, you know. Now, he's looking forward to moving into one of the new structures. They're called Mod Pods, and they'll replace the tents. They measure 8 by 8 feet and include a cot, heating, cooling, and a door that locks. They cost nearly $14,000 each, and there will be about 50. These pods I've been hearing about, you know, that's, that's what's really got us interested in, because, like, are you kidding me? A, a, a room of our own with walls and electricity? Washoe County started its safe camp in Reno last June. It's in an industrial area near a highway interchange. Assistant County Manager Kate Thomas says it's an alternative to the county's shelter where nearly 600 people sleep. The shelter and campsite also offer food, restrooms, showers, and laundry facilities. There's a space for pets as well. These are individuals who have been out in the weather for some of them decades. We've removed some of the barriers that make it difficult for them on a day-to-day basis out in the elements. But it's not just the heat or cold. A few months after the tent program opened, county residents were advised to stay indoors because the air quality was deemed hazardous due to wildfires in California. We offered space in that large emergency shelter. We set it aside, sort of its own area. People didn't want to go. They just want to be in their own space. Some West Coast cities have experimented with sanctioned encampments for years. It's a growing phenomenon in our region as more and more people struggle with homelessness. In the Mountain West, there are sanctioned camps in places like Missoula, Montana, and Las Cruces, New Mexico. In Denver, the Colorado Village Collaborative operates three safe outdoor space programs. Together, they have room for 150 people. But a survey last year found more than 5,500 people in shelters in the metro area. 
and advocates say the count is likely higher. We do believe that housing is the solution to end homelessness, but we also know we're never going to be able to build right now to meet the demand that's out there. So until then, what do we do? That's Quica Montoya of Safe Outdoor Spaces. The Denver-based nonprofit provides ice fishing shelters, zero-degree sleeping bags, and heated blankets. We set it up during COVID pandemic as a, a response to uh, stay-at-home orders is how is how are our unhoused folks going to stay at home if they don't have a home? Donald Whitehead is the head of the National Coalition for the Homeless. He says sanctioned camps aren't the answer, especially in winter. We need to produce housing. Um, we need to create jobs that pay affordable wages. Um, those are the long-term solutions and the structural changes that we need. Solutions like encampments. Um, are a way for communities uh, to kind of get an easy pass. People in Washoe County's program must agree to seek permanent housing. So far, nearly 60% have. But subsidized housing programs have long wait lists. And in Reno and Denver, the average rent for a one-bedroom apartment is more than $1,900, according to Rent.com. So getting to the next step can be difficult. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Lucia Starbuck in Reno. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at KUNC.org. That's our show for today. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. And our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.